this is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Hi, listeners. It's been a while. All we can say is that we continue to live in a global <laughs> pandemic. Um, but welcome to episode 28, Emily Pauline Johnson. In this episode, we need to give you a content warning for racially motivated violence and death, alcohol-related violence, settler violence, residential schools, just in general, um, and mention of suicide. So as usual, before we get going, we're going to go on a trip around the world in the lifetime of Emily Pauline Johnson. On the 4th of March, 1861, President Abraham Lincoln is inaugurated in the US. In 1867, the Anglican Church establishes a residential school in Brantford, Ontario. On the 20th of April, 1871, President Ulysses S. Grant's Statute 13 which allowed him to suspend Cabe's corpus in order to combat white supremacy organisations, including the KKK, is signed into law by Congress. On the 12th of April 1876, the Indian Act in Canada was passed, updating previous legislation of the province of Canada that spoke to the relationship between the government of Canada and officially recognised First Nations. In 1879, Canadian Prime Minister John A. Macdonald commissions journalist and politician Nicholas Flood Davin to study industrial schools for Indigenous children in the United States. Davin recommends that Canada follows the US example of, quote, aggressive civilization. In his, and warning for language here, in his 1879 report on industrial schools for Indians and half-breeds. So in 1881, a couple of things. On the 16th of February, the Canadian Pacific Railway is incorporated, and on April 4th, the 1881 census finds Canada's population to be 4,324,810. In 1885, the Transcontinental Canadian Pacific Railway, then the longest in the world, is completed. In June 1908, L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables is published. In 1910, the Royal Canadian Navy is established. And on April 24th, 1913, the Woolworth Building opens in New York City. Designed by Cass Gilbert, it is the tallest building in the world on this date, and for more than a decade after. Yeah, so before we move on, I'm going to add to the content warning at the top. This is another episode where we will sometimes be using antiquated and what's now considered racist terminology if we're referring to specific acts, publication titles, or other official documentation. Otherwise, we will use um, the terms that Indigenous peoples tell us they prefer in the 21st century. Um, It's the, the line we walk when we're doing biographical reporting. So, Emily Pauline Johnson who went by Pauline for most of her life and who wrote under the pseudonym, not really pseudonym, 
nom de plume E. Pauline Johnson, was born on the 10th of March, 1861, at her family estate, Chiefswood, which was located on the Six Nations Reserve near Brantford, Ontario. Back then it was called Canada West, but is now Southern Ontario. And her parents were George Henry Martin Johnson and Emily Howells Johnson. She had three older siblings. So her father was the chief of the local Mohawk family, which had a long history of resistance to European sovereignty. And her mother was English, but she grew up a Quaker abolitionist. So she's at least theoretically kind of understands um, yeah. the ills of colonialism a little bit. <laughs> yeah. She's thinking more about this than the average English person of the time, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Pauline's mother's family had emigrated to the United States specifically to join the fight against slavery. And Emily, the elder, as we'll call her, wound up in Six Nations when she went to visit her own older sister, Eliza Howells, who was there with her husband, the Reverend Adam Elliott, an Anglican missionary stationed at the reservation. Speculation, he might have been associated with that Anglican residential school, Mm. Um, but I didn't see any kind of documentation of that. From that visit, it was fate. Emily met George, who was a polyglot. He spoke many of the Iroquois dialects and was, because of that, working as a church translator. Um, The two were married in 1853, despite much familial and social pearl-clutching. The editors of E. Pauline Johnson, Takahuanake, collected poems and selected prose, note that While intermarriage between English and native folks was fairly common, typically it was native women marrying white men. So E. Pauline's parents were wave makers, and since they both had fairly distinguished lineages and social statuses, the marriage became a topic of fascination for maybe longer than it would have otherwise. So, of course, that kind of context had an impact on the way Emily and George raised their children. I feel like we've talked about the way that middle-class respectability can be both a weapon Mm -hmm. and a shield in some of our earlier episodes. Well, Emily the Elder seemed to be well aware of this fact, and she made sure her kids were well-versed with English middle-class culture and social expectations. But the children also learned about their native heritage, especially from their paternal grandfather, Chief Sakayan Waratan. And apologies if I mispronounce that. I was unable to find any kind of pronunciation guide online. Pauline's grandfather also went by John Smoke Johnson. So that's kind of a pattern here that we have sort of anglicized names and uh, indigenous names. Most people default to, to sharing the anglicized versions, so you don't hear a lot of people pronouncing the Mohawk names. Yeah, so I think we're trying to avoid just saying the anglicized, but there's not always yeah. a, an easily accessible pronunciation guide. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to note here that Pauline and her siblings grew up in a period where there was still some uncertainty and disagreement about how things would go with all these hacking white people. Pauline's father and grandfather were optimistic and confident that they could work profitably within Anglo Canadian social and power structures. Others, less optimistically, but as we know with hindsight far more realistically, thought that trying to be involved at all with settlers was a huge mistake. 
So this meant that Pauline, her siblings, and her mother, while part of Iroquois life at Six Nations, were also always outsiders, at least in part. The children were too white for their indigenous kin and too native for the whites. So while the family lived on the reservation, they were sort of separate from everyone else, um, living on a private 200-acre estate called Chiefswood, which their father, George, had purchased when he married Emily. From 1876 to 1877, after being tutored at home in her early years, Pauline attends Brantford Collegiate Institute. She appears in several plays in Brantford as a member of the Brant Amateurs, and following her graduation, she returns to her parents' home. And we don't know a lot about her life between 1877 and 1884. Those Mm -hmm. theatre seeds uh, would sprout into a career later in her life. But before that could happen, in 1884, the family suffered a tragic loss. So their father, George, was brutally beaten by white liquor traders that he had been opposing. And he dies from the... Uh, effects of that beating uh, a few days later. So Emily, Mrs. Johnson, Pauline, and her older sister Evelyn leave Chiefswood and move into rented quarters in the nearby town Brantford, Ontario. This is about the time that she begins writing, and she's 22 years old. Between 1884 and 1886, Pauline succeeds in publishing four poems in Gems of Poetry Uh, which was published in New York, and eight poems in The Week, which was a Toronto periodical. In 1886, Pauline is commissioned to write a poem called Ode to Brandt to mark the unveiling of the monument honouring Joseph Brandt after the American Revolutionary War. A day after the reading, Pauline is interviewed by Garth Grafton of The Globe, Toronto. As Pauline's reputation grows from writing for magazines and newspapers to publishing poetry, prose and short stories, to performing... She begins to sign her work as both E. Pauline Johnson and Takahiwanake, the name of her great-grandfather, emphasising her Mohawk identity and creating the, quote, Indian princess persona. More on that later. So in 1889, two more of Pauline's poems are published in Songs of the Great Dominion, which was edited by W.G. Leigh Hall. In 1892, Pauline performs her poem, A Cry from an Indian Wife and As Red Men Die, at Frank Ye's Canadian Literature Evening in Toronto. This begins her touring as a performance artist. In 1894, Pauline begins performing basically full-time in earnest, something that she'll do for the next 17 years of her life, mostly in Canada, but also in Great Britain and the United States. So her tours consist of her kind of dramatically reciting her works. And um, she's really known for this this outsized sort of native persona that she adopts in her performances. She's very strategic Mm -hmm. about it, but she also sort of plays with um, her identity as multiracial. So she kind of starts shows um, in this native dress and then ends them in a full evening gown, which I think is fascinating. Like she's leveraging her... She's she's refusing to be one thing. She's always mm-hmm. both things, right? Um, but as frequently is the case, and I think as has come up in many of our recent episodes, the audience 
that she is performing for or sort of the mainstream audience um, is really kind of consuming her work in a very uh, colonial other kind of mindset. So they're interested in this sort of um, exotic persona mm-hmm. of like a of a of a un quote uncivilized person, um, and so she's kind of battling that through her whole career. Um, but she's also like selling out shows across North America and in England, and so like. Yeah, it's this kind of tension that follows her throughout her career. Yeah, a really difficult balancing act between trying to be true to herself and... Yeah. Um, I know she did shows like specifically at um, reservations in, in Canada and the US too. And so that, that's a really kind of pointed thing of like, this is not... Mm-hmm. My, my work is not just for white audiences. Um, I'm sure she met a lot of celebrities during this 17-year period of touring. One of them was a suffragist and politician, Nellie L. McClung, who she met in Manitoba. In 1898, another tragedy for the family, Pauline's mother, Emily Susanna Howes, dies. And as a result of this, they lose the Brantford family home. It's unclear whether they were living there the whole time. I think mm. actually they weren't. It sounds like maybe they were. Maybe the sons were, but yeah. Um, so in 1901, um, Pauline begins performing with a partner named Walter McRae. Um, they collaborate artistically for the next eight ish years until 1909. In 1906, Pauline visits London, England for the second time. And here she meets Squamish chief Sua Puluk, um, whose anglicised name is Joseph Capilano, and his de- delegation were there to voice a protest against Edward VII's hunting and fishing restrictions imposed on the First Nations of the British Columbia coast. Because, of course, um, Canada at this time is under British dominion. Yes. Yeah, we didn't include this in the Around the World feature, but throughout Pauline's life, there is a series of acts where... Um, Basically, Canada is taking over vast swaths of native land, um, mm-hmm. much as happens in the U.S. Um, so in 1909, Pauline moves from the East Coast to the West Coast, so from Winnipeg to Vancouver, and gives up regular performances to concentrate on writing. So she does a lot of her prose writing in this period of her life, um, but on a sadder note, she is diagnosed with breast cancer shortly after arriving in Vancouver. And on a still sadder note, in 1913, on March 7th, so three days shy of her birthday in 1913, Pauline dies of breast cancer. At her request, she is buried in Vancouver's Stanley Park within sight of Siwash Rock. So after her death... Um, she is kind of honored in a variety of ways. So in 1922, a monument to Pauline Johnson is erected at Stanley Park in Vancouver. And in 1961, a Canadian stamp is issued to commemorate the centennial of Pauline's birth. So I think with a lot of these, more so, it's really obvious with the writers that we've been covering this this season, 
there's kind of less biographical details and we might have, you know, we can we could do a four parter on Mary Shelley's life, but with this we have what, twenty minutes of biography on Pauline Johnson because it just is more difficult to find information and that's how this kind of like imperial view of history is maintained. It's just there aren't records there for these people. Mm-hmm. But I think we're going to talk a little bit about her writing life, mm-hmm. um, and that gives us a little bit more insight into sort of how she is approaching her career and through that, the world around her and sort of the big issues of her lifetime. So as we mentioned, Pauline's first publications appeared in the 1880s when she started to place her poems in Ontario newspapers and magazines, and she published prolifically over the next 30-ish years of her life. From 1884 to 1891, she publishes 60 known poems in various North American periodicals and magazines. Most of them appeared in Saturday Night and The Week, which were leading magazines published out of Toronto. And throughout her career, she referred to herself primarily as a poet. Mm -hmm. Um, Recent biographical work has sort of uncovered that she's actually did a lot of fiction and prose and nonfiction prose as well. Um, but as a writer, she identified publicly as a poet, despite being kind of just as um, jack-of-all-trades as a writer as many 19th century mm-hmm. writers were. Yeah. Like, most writers dabble in everything in the 19th century. But I think often you do get this, you know, they see themselves as a writer of a certain genre. Yes, that is, that's fair. Yeah. Um, let's see. So in, ni- in 1890... Is when uh, eighteen ninety is when it seems that she branches out in prose. Um, basically, that's when her first prose publications appear. She might have been writing prose all along. We don't really know. Um, and her first publications in a sort of prose medium are stories and sketches that appear again in Canadian and U.S. periodicals. Almost all of her work appears under the name E. Pauline Johnson. Um, we think that her early work may have been printed under her full name, so Emily Pauline Johnson, but certainly the majority of it is E. Pauline. And she conveniently explained her writing ambitions to a friend via letter in 1890. So we'll share it here and use the exact terminology that she used because it does refer to a specific and extremely hateful political movement. So to quote E. Pauline, I am willing to consent to anything legitimate that will not mean success in the end. Not that I ever expect that success to mean fame. I have not the ability to ever command a wreath of bays, but I have a double motive in all my work and all my strivings. One is to upset the Indian extermination and non-education theory. In fact, to stand by my own blood and my race. The other is that I am not a millionaireess. I, I am as a proverbial church mouse. Someday I hope to see something of the great world, to travel in the holy land, the old world, the Rockies, the far west. And to do this, one must work. And as we have learned, she did meet those goals. Or most of them anyway. She went to the old world, being London, and she travelled around the US. Yeah. I think the only place she didn't end up is the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this, quote, Indian extermination and non-education theory is the political force behind residential schools, which we've heard about so much over the past year, Mm -hmm. Um, and which, I mean, 
and before that. Like, there wasn't a new thing we discovered in 2020 um, slash 2021. But um, yeah, this sort of forced, quote, civilization of indigenous indigenous children that happened in Canada and the U.S. And that was really a thinly veiled, not always even veiled, um, act of violent colonialism taken out on children. And I think, I know you um, say that we, well, we knew yeah. about it before 2020 and 2021, but I think in the last couple of years, we have just not been able to ignore it anymore. Like, I think yeah, white people have been, and like, I'm saying this as a white Brit, and I'm very aware that a lot of this is to do with the British colonization and dominion of Canada. And like, we have been able to ignore this. And then in the past couple of years, it's not been possible to ignore it anymore if you have any kind of conscience. Yeah. I think there was this kind of sweeping under the rug that happened that we knew it was kind of... Um... Like, if you were interested enough in any kind of restoration, you knew it was there. But maybe the general yeah. public possibly didn't, and not because it wasn't there to be known, because of yeah. like willful ignorance. Yeah, so, like, I did... Um, uh, I grew up in the American Southwest, and so I... Um, a lot of professors at my undergrad university were specialists in Southwestern literature. And so I encountered sort of these first person narratives about children who went to these residential schools and had really abusive uh, experiences there. Um, but there is a sweeping under the rug that like, mm -hmm. even if you're studying the literature, they don't always tell you that like this movement, this, this residential school Every residential school basically had a body count. And as we've learned in the last year, it was big. Yeah. Like it wasn't only cultural violence. It was literal. Like, I mean, it's in the name. It was genocide. They call themselves extermination. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. So Pauline's writing career is doubly motivated by her own words. One is it's political. It's always political. Um, as we know, especially for writers of color, like, they don't have the luxury of pretending art is not political, right, mm. as white people often do. Um, but it's also, like, literally, she's a working writer. This is how she earns her living. Yeah, I think it really, this quote, I mean, I think it probably is a, like, a commonly held thought, especially within people who have that, like, strength and determination to do whatever they can. Like, it really mm -hmm. reminded me of the things that Mary Church Terrell was saying in the same vein of, you know, I have to be excellent and like kind of their existence is political. Yeah. It's doubly important for them to succeed and to do whatever they can. Yeah. I also saw a lot of uh, similarity between what we discussed in that Mary Church Terrell episode and what we were discussing here. Um, it is this very like, I don't know. As somebody who does creative writing, we talk a lot about um, writing the other and mm -hmm. um, own voices as a movement in the publishing. Um, and what it sounds like from these two writers, right, is like they're very cognizant of the fact that, one, white audiences only want stories about people of color that feature sort of like tragedy. And in fact, the excerpts I'm going to read today from uh, Pauline's body of work are um, very, very clear about her thoughts on that um and two that like when when people who 
aren't from those cultures write about those cultures, uh, it gets problematic very quickly for a variety of reasons. So yeah, so the excerpt we have today is going to call out that in a way that feels very 21st century. So her career begins to take off in a new direction in 1892 when Frank Yeh, who uh, Gerson and Strongbong note was, quote, a leading cultural nationalist of the day, invited her to be part of a Canadian literary evening organized by the Young Liberal Club of Toronto. So as we note, she's already an experienced stage performer from her school days on. She's really well prepared to give a dramatic live performance. And she'd, one of the poems that she performs is called A Cry from an Indian Wife, which is a dramatic indictment of the mistreatment of the prairie tribes during the Second Northwest Rebellion. So Gerson and Strongbong um, wrote uh, one of the only academic biographies of E. Pauline Johnson. It's called um, E. Pauline Johnson, Takiawanake, Paddling My Own Canoe. And then there is also a collection of poems and prose that they edited that has a similar title, E. Pauline Johnson, Takiawanake, Collected Poems and Selected Prose. Um, so they're kind of the... Uh, leading scholars on the life of Pauline Johnson. Yeah, and they note that both Ye and Pauline were quick to recognise the audience's enthusiastic response to her poem and its associated white liberal guilt as an opportunity. So not long after this, Pauline set out on a career dramatically performing her writing, as we noted in the bio section, she was heralded as a Canadian Boudicca and a Mohawk princess, the second of which seemed to stick. So in the introduction to her first published book, which was printed by British publisher John Lane in 1895, we begin to see more of Pauline's writing philosophy laid out. Um, so she writes, As wampum is to the native... So to the poet are his songs, chiseled alike from that which is the purest of his possessions, woven alike with meeting into belt and book, fraught alike with the corresponding message of peace, the breathing of tradition, the value of more than coin, and the seal of ownership. After about 1895, she basically stops writing poetry to focus on performing. And this is essentially just writing in a different medium. She becomes well-known for beginning... As Courtney said earlier, her performances in, quote, native dress and ending them in an evening gown, which is a feat for, ever, for anyone, but especially in a 1890s, early 1900s evening gown. And mm -hmm. she is very specifically performing her multiracial identity, as we mentioned earlier. We've already spoken a little bit to the fact that I so really sort of came looking specifically for this exotic other um, in her work. They didn't necessarily see her as a sort of complex, multifaceted human. They saw her as a stereotype, and they wanted mm -hmm. that stereotype in her work. Um, and that comes through a lot in the way that she's talked about as, quote, a native poet, right? Um, Gerson and Strongbog note that of the approximately 100 poems Johnson had written before the end of 1894, only a dozen refer to First Nations topics, end quote. So even though that's kind of a driving political purpose in her work to sort of push back against this cultural 
and physical eradication of her people. Um, a lot of her poetry is not specifically sort of um, quote-unquote native in topic or theme. Yeah, it's this kind of almost fetishization where you see a thing is written by a native person. You decide all you can get from that is the fact that a native person has written it, so it must be all about those themes. Whereas it very much yeah. isn't. And, and publishers really contributed to that with the way that they um, designed her collections of poems, the imagery that they used. If you search, you'll see what I mean. Just do a Google search of her work and you'll see the covers. And yeah, uh, that's what they saw as their marketing point. So in the 1890s, Johnson increasingly turned her hand to fiction um, and was attempting to enlarge the market for her own talents. And despite, we talked about her enthusiasm for the British Empire. I don't think we really have. <laughs> uh, I mean, she wanted to like she wanted to travel in Europe, mm -hmm. right? She had like her mother was English, right? So she has a little bit like she has that connection. She's yeah, yeah. Obviously, visiting London multiple times and trying to build that connection a little bit. But despite that, she sold the great majority of her stories to Canadian and American publications. So she experimented with different styles of short stories. And a number, including one called A Red Girl's Reasoning that we mentioned earlier, continued to highlight the humanity of First Nations people. Um, as with poetry, though, her production of prose dropped off. Yeah, so she kind of had ebbs and flows in her production. Um, it picked up again toward the end of her life a little mm. bit. Um, and yeah, yeah, so that's kind of an overview of her approach to writing and her writing career. We didn't name drop a lot of her publications. There is an extremely long list um, of them. I think you can find versions of that list online. We'll probably include one in the show notes. Yeah. Um, we thought we'd maybe conclude by um, reading you an excerpt from a prose piece, a nonfiction piece called a Strong Race Opinion on the Indian Girl in Modern Fiction, which is one of the only pieces of literary criticism that she ever wrote. And it is amazing. Um, so, like, how's this for a first paragraph? Or a first page? Every race in the world enjoys its own peculiar characteristics, but it scarcely follows that every individual of a nation must possess these prescribed singularities or otherwise forfeit in the eyes of the world their nationality. Individual personality is one of the most charming things to be met with, either in a flesh-and-blood existence or upon the pages of fiction, and it matters little to what race an author's heroine belongs if he makes her character distinct, unique, and natural." The American book heroine of today is very colored as to personality and action. The author does not consider it necessary to the development of her character and the plot of the story to insist upon her having American colored eyes, an American carriage, an American voice, American motives, and an American mode of dying. He allows her to evolve an individuality ungoverned by nationalisms, but the outcome of impulse and nature and a general womanishness. Not so the Indian girl in modern fiction. The author permits her character no such spontaneity. She must not be one of womankind at large. Neither must she have an originality, a singularity that is not definitely, quote, Indian. I quote 
Indian, as there seems to be an impression amongst authors that such a thing as tribal distinction does not exist among the North American Aborigines. The term Indian signifies about as much as the term European, but I cannot recall ever having read a story where the heroine was described as, quote, a European. The Indian girl we meet in cold type, however, is rarely distressed by having to belong to any tribe or to reflect any tribal characteristics. She is merely a wholesome sort of mixture of any band existing between the Micmacs of Gaspé and the Kwa Kles of British Columbia. Yet strange to say that notwithstanding the numerous tribes with their aggregate numbers reaching more than 122,000 souls in Canada alone, our Canadian authors can cull from this huge revenue of character but one Indian girl. And stranger still that this lonely little heroine never had a prototype in breathing flesh and blood existence. I mean, that <laughs> that introduction packs a huge punch. She is not, like, being subtle no, that, at all. That's so strong. And she goes on to critique this pattern that she sees of um, indigenous women falling in love, unrequited love, with proper white gentlemen, um, making sort of, like, unchaste advances, being used as foils in the story, to unite those gentlemen with their proper British lady loves and then committing suicide. Um, she she details, I want to say like half a dozen or more novels that do this to really, really call authors out. Like one, that like not one single one of those characters is an educated woman as she is. Um, two, that it's not culturally reflective at all of any of the behavior that she herself has seen in her culture um and three that like the reality is almost always the opposite of that yeah. that it is white men actually marrying indigenous women um and also that those marriages can be happy and you don't have to yeah so that the white person can be with marty yourselves yeah and there's this very 19th century moment where she's almost like you're 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 calling native women um basically loose mm -hmm. and th that's not a fair thing to say so like she's not that upfront about it because you can't really be upfront about it in a publication uh in the 19th century but that's basically what it amounts to but there's also when she's in the very start where she's like books don't say this girl had American eyes. And then if you probe that deeply, you're like, what are American eyes? And you know she means white Americans. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like, not only is the individuality of different First Nations people not interrogated, but also we're just erasing the fact that not all like Americans are white. Mm -hmm. And that's that feels very deliberate to me. Yeah. It's deliberate and it's a conversation that's happening like like just in the last year I've seen the writing community be like, oh, we should probably like describe when a person is white instead of assuming that white is the default. Yeah, this is like when um, Zadie Smith's NW came out and it was shocking to people because she only specifies race if the person is white, but in a mm -hmm. very like political way where she's like, in this book, black is the default. I will specify yeah. if the character is white. And that really shocked people. I can remember having conversations with people about that book and then being like, but I don't yeah. get it. It's like, 
Is in every book we are the default. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's this thing that's like, yeah, like currently like writing discourse is all like that is this revolutionary idea that she's like plainly stating here yeah. in the 19th century, right? Like we, <laughs> history is a vicious circle. <laughs> yeah. The fact that this book that came out in what, I think like 2013, 2014 was seen yeah. as revolutionary and this is. Yeah. 2012. Yeah. This essay, if you can get it in full, I highly recommend reading it. Like, I read mm. it, like, glued to the page and then just had, like, rage shakes afterward because, like, not at her, but, like, yeah. because, like, she's so on the money here. And, like, the fact that it's still such a timely and applicable statement to writing is just, like, not great. Not great publishing. Yeah, there's actually a. I don't know how legal this is, but there's a there's an option that doesn't need institutional access there. I just paste it in the doc. Nice. We'll be revolutionaries. <laughs> yeah. So that is our little taster of the life and work of E. Pauline Johnson. Um, there's more to dig into, even though we might not have you know whole shelves of documentation of her life. There's always more than we can cover. Yeah. Um, so we hope this encourages you to find her work, um, read it, learn more about it, share what you're learning on social media. Um, it's kind of always the hope of our podcast. Yeah, I know. And this happens almost every time, but I know it's made me want to learn more about her. So hopefully it has yeah. listeners as well. Yeah. So as always, thank you for listening. And hopefully we'll be back on a regular schedule starting this month. Yeah, hopefully. Um, pandemic brain is nearly at an end. So, Yeah. No promises, but we have hope. We are certainly trying. Thank you for listening. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. All of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons attribution licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, formed by Steve's Bedroom Band. 